Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Catholic Studies. I'm your host, Piotr Kosicki. I'm professor of history at the University of Maryland in College Park. I'm very pleased to welcome to the program today, Sarah Shortal, who is assistant professor of history at the University of Notre Dame. We'll be discussing her new book, which appeared with Harvard University Press in 2021, Soldiers of God in a Secular World, Catholic Theology and 20th Century French Politics. Sarah is an intellectual historian of modern Europe with a particular focus on France and the relationship between religion and politics. And in addition to the book we'll be discussing today, she also recently co-edited a volume of essays entitled Christianity and Human Rights Reconsidered, which appeared with Cambridge in 2020. Uh, Professor Shortal, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. So why don't we go ahead and get right into it? I always start the conversations with the question of how it was that you came to the topic of, in this case, Catholic theology in 20th century France. Yes, uh, what a good question. It's a question I get a lot. Um, I was trained as a uh, modern European intellectual historian, primarily not as a theologian. Um, So this was a little bit outside of my sort of usual, my training and my um, initial area of interest. Um, But one of the things that really struck me, because I also did some training in in early modern and medieval uh, European intellectual history, was the way that theology sort of exits the picture as soon as we get to uh, modernity. And um, I also did some training in the Divinity School at Harvard. And there it really struck me the way that uh, contemporary theologians, 20th century theologians were deeply embedded in uh, the kinds of debates I was reading about amongst uh, philosophers, secular philosophers, and so it struck me that those two fields were kind of oddly separate. And so a major goal of, of the book is to try to bring those two stories back together. And I also, in, in, uh, in that course I did in, in the Divinity School, I read a little bit of work by Henri de Lubac, which initially got me interested in him. And I was just sort of initially taken by his theology and what the relationship was between his theology and his political activism during the Second World War, his resistance activities. So that was sort of the nucleus uh, that started it. Why don't you tell our uh, audience a little bit more about de Lubac? Uh, hopefully everyone will buy the book, but if you could just introduce him a little bit, because he really is such, I mean, he's the pivot point of your book, mm-hmm. clearly. Yes, absolutely. He is. He's definitely the central protagonist. Uh, so he will be familiar uh, probably to, to people who have some knowledge of 20th century uh, Catholicism and Catholic thought. He is one of the leading theologians, Catholic theologians of the 20th century, arguably. Um, and so he was born at the uh, end of the 19th century. 
and uh, entered the Jesuit order. And at the the moment when he was entering the Jesuit order, France was undergoing uh, this extremely polarizing anti-clerical campaign uh, launched by the Third Republic, uh, the Republican government, which saw um, tens of thousands of religious uh, having to to flee the country and and go into exile as a result of of these anti-clerical laws. And so because of that, he did much of his clerical formation in exile. And I focus in particular on um, the time he spent on the Channel Island of Jersey in particular, because it's an interesting story. Um, But he was really profoundly marked, I think, by that experience and also by uh, his experience fighting in the First World War, um, because previously priests and seminarians had been exempted from military service. So that was a really formative uh, moment. And then he was ordained and uh, became a prominent intellectual in the 1930s and 1940s, uh, mostly, and uh, is very, very important for his work on ecclesiology. Those are ideas about the nature of the church, structure of the church, um, and about the relationship between the natural and the supernatural orders. Um, For that, he was condemned in 1950 in a major encyclical, Um, but then rehabilitated essentially at the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s and then eventually became a cardinal of the church. So he kind of had this this moment of resurrection, as it were. Well, we're clearly talking about someone whose vitae spans the 20th century in so many ways, as you just outlined. Uh, I wanted to start off just in terms of some of the historical uh, implications or rather historiographical implications of your book. Action Française, Charles Maurras, uh, these are entities that may be very familiar to some of our audience, less familiar to others, but really very central to the starting as a starting point for your book and as a foil. So one thing that I wanted to ask, because for me, it was really quite striking uh, reading, and I, 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 you, you put it more or less this way, that church-state separation was the trigger if not immediately, then over the long haul, for important modernizing reformist tendencies within Roman Catholicism, writ large, I would say, not just in France. So how do we go from a niche French royalist movement created, at, or at least led by mostly non-Catholics, to the transformation of Catholicism out of France? Yeah, so a major argument of the book is that you, we should think about the separation of church and state in France, which is the culmination of this anti-clerical campaign I was talking about, culminates in 1905 with the official separation of church and state. That We should think about that as a kind of uh, starting point for the history of political Catholicism rather than an end point, um, and that it opens up new kinds of political theologies and new possibilities for the role of the church in public life. Um, so there's a kind of specific institutional story I tell there about the role of these exiled seminaries, like the one that Dubuque attended on the island of Jersey and how they became these sites for this, the development of this new theology, even though they were a product of, of uh, the anti-clerical campaign and the separation of church and state. Um, but a key moment in the story is uh, the condemnation of the Action Française. So this was this far-right, uh, nationalist, anti-Semitic, royalist movement led by Charles Maurras, um, who was himself not a believer, as, as you mentioned. So that's that's sort of crucial to the story. But that party had really dominated Catholic intellectual circles 
um, from its founding at the end of the 19th century until uh, the mid-20s when the Vatican condemned it. Um, so it really had a kind of stranglehold. Uh, Yves Simon famously says you know, that it exercised a kind of dictatorship over Catholic intellectual circles, and anyone who came out as a Democrat was sort of left, left out. Um, so when it is condemned, that, that's a huge moment of transformation that opens up a space almost for these new approaches to the role of the church in public life and moves the question beyond just simply an effort to uh, reinstitute the confessional state and kind of reverse the losses of the separation of church and state and instead focuses more on questions of totalitarianism, the threat of totalitarianism, um, and just begins to look forward as to what exactly the role of the church should be in a secular public sphere rather than looking to simply reverse uh, the separation of church and state. You used the word totalitarianism a moment ago. In your book, it's clear that totalitarianism is a dirty word in secular politics, but actually not so dirty at all when applied to the church itself. Obviously, to avoid um, you know, a confusion in terms, I actually wanted to ask you, I was thinking of a speech that Giovanni Gentile gave in the early 1930s about how the church and the state could never be reconciled because they were two totalitarian states. And obviously, Gentile wasn't the only one who felt this way. Your, your protagonist felt this way. So I'm curious... Do you buy the applicability of totalitarianism as an idea to the Catholic Church? Huh, that's an interesting question. I never thought about whether whether I buy it per se. Well, you can talk um, about it historically if you want, but but I, I mean, I think it, it's it's connected to the kind of argument you make. Yeah, no, I just thought it was such a weird and counterintuitive argument that they make. You know, they're deeply anti-totalitarian, um, you know, and as others have shown, and, and, and my work kind of corroborates this, Catholics were central to the development of the theory of totalitarianism, right? This idea of the kind of um, close analogy between Soviet communism and um, Nazism. Um, and, but they believed that totalitarianism could not be combated with the resources of liberalism and democracy, because they argued that actually those had given rise to totalitarianism in some way by evacuating religion from public life and kind of creating this space for new political religions. So they view totalitarianism as a, as a kind of religious phenomenon. And so it has to be combated with a religious phenomenon as well, therefore, by definition. And so they conceived of the church as a kind of good totalitarianism. So in contrast to, um, you know, the totalitarian states in Germany or in the Soviet Union, which crushes the individual person, they think that the, the kind of genius of the church is to be able to reconcile the individual person and the community. Does this so have do. to do with, oh, I'm, I, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I, no, 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 go ahead. Well, I just wanted to follow up because uh, it, in some ways this opens the door to how you talk about ecclesiology. And totalitarianism, I think, is a term that is accessible to a very broad audience. And I found it a very useful foil, right? This sort of pivot that you talk about uh, in the book between incarnation and eschatology cast against the idea of a good totalitarianism. Uh, 
totalitarianism is totalitarianism. How does it evolve? So if you think historically about the kind of shift you talk about just among your protagonists, would their understanding of the church have evolved? Or was it more the theological foundations that changed as time passed? Yeah, I mean, there is um, a major shift, I think, that happens from the 1930s to the 1950s. um, And there's, in particular, a sort of split that opens up uh, within this kind of what I call the progressive wing of of the French church. Um, In the 1930s, you know, most of them share this language of personalism, which is sort of what I've been talking about, this idea of the relationship between the person and the community and the community and person are kind of mutually constitutive in some way as opposed to a kind of liberal individualist model. Um, and so they share a fairly similar vision of the church. Um, it's one that uh, was known at the time as, as the mystical body of Christ theology. So this is the idea that the church, you know, instead of thinking about it as a kind of visible institution, the way we would normally think about it, they think of the church as a kind of eschatological or mystical entity um, that includes not just the present members of the church, but also past and future members. And they view this as a kind of universal community because everyone can be viewed as a potential member of the body of Christ. So that's kind of the foundation of their idea of this good totalitarianism. But then the problem is that um, it becomes clear that not everyone draws the same political conclusions from that ecclesiology. And there are people, especially in Germany, people like Karl Adam who kind of link up the mystical body theology with a vitalist um, politics uh, associated with national socialism. And so uh, that forces some of the theologians I look at to reconsider how they imagine the church and to try to clarify what it is that is different about the church uh, from, you know, secular political communities. And so there is a, a real evolution in their vision of the church and also they shift away from this language of incarnation to a focus on eschatology and salvation and really stressing that we cannot mistake any community on earth as the embodiment of the kingdom of God. That we that the eschatology and, and our understanding of, of the church should always relativize um, any political commitments in this world. It should always be a source of critique, of political critique. I'm going to zero in on the word eschatology now for a second. Uh, For me, eschatology, obviously, there's so many different directions that uh, an eschatological conversation could go, but the immediate image is last judgment. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, there is also a secular set or visceral set of associations uh, from the secular realm. So it, it doesn't surprise me even, I mean, obviously I am, as you know, also a historian of Catholic thought, but even if I weren't, I feel like I would look to World War II and think of eschatology in a more intuitive or visceral sense. Uh, Before then, you know, following your wonderful and very, very rich analysis, I'm curious, uh, just as a lived experience, how would you talk about uh, the relevance of eschatology, uh, understood as the world crashing down around you uh, and final judgment upon you in terms of the larger theological ramifications. 
Yeah, I mean, it a lot depends on how you define it. Um, I think for these people, it's crucial to understand. So eschatology would be, you know, anything having to do with the end times, basically, um, and, you know, salvation, broadly speaking. So, um, so for them, it's crucial to think about eschatology not as something that is in the future, right, in, in our kind of understanding of how time operates, but as something that's already present here and now because it operates according to a different temporal logic. So it's something that's um, embodied in the sacraments, for example, but also in the church, right, which connect us to this, to this different temporality. And so for them, eschatology is not a distraction from our temporal engagements in the present, right? It's not, it doesn't mean that you sort of wait uh, for the end of time uh, to happen and that humans are powerless. Um, it's not an escapist doctrine. That's, that's what I try to emphasize in the book. It might seem like it means um, that we should just step back uh, from any engagement in temporal life, but for them, it's a really deeply motivating um, doctrine. And it means you have to stand up in this uh, day and age to anything that contravenes uh, the dictates of the faith or, you know, the final destiny of, of human life on earth. And that's obviously they view Nazism as something that does that. Um, so, so I really stress that this is central to their engagement during the war. It's the central motivating force. And it's not, you know, other things we would think of like, you know, patriotism or a commitment to democracy or what have you, that this is really what drives them to get involved. So eschatology in some sense is what makes resistance to Vichy and writ large to fascism a just war of sorts. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, may I ask, uh, Théard de Chardin, a figure who likewise will be known to many in the audience, but from a variety of different sources and someone I thought was quite, there were things in your book that I found very surprising and illuminating that I had no idea about with respect to Théard de Chardin, especially how early his influence was on uh, many of his Jesuit colleagues who you know, became the heart and soul of Nouvelle Théologie, uh, Dulubac in particular. How does he fit in into the eschatology story? Because, of course, his training was very different and his being muzzled, uh, so to speak, as a theologian had pretty substantial implications for his ability to be present in these conversations. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, let me just give a little background on, on Teilhard for people who are not uh, familiar. He's a really unusual figure. He was also a Jesuit, um, a bit older than, than some of these figures. And um, he was also trained as a geologist and a paleontologist. Um, so that was his kind of primary professional affiliation. And um, he developed this really unorthodox uh, theory of evolution that tried to kind of combine uh, the spiritual and the material aspects of evolution. Um, and he thought that, that human life on Earth <clears throat> was converging um, towards each other, and eventually that the, the universe would progressively take on the features of Christ. And this, this is the idea of the cosmic Christ. And to be fair, this has some roots in uh, the Greek fathers and the early, the early church, um, but it, it's a, a sort of odd, I guess, sounding uh, doctrine. 
Um, and so I argue that this has a really, really important impact on uh, people like de Lubac, especially, who wrote a number of books in defense of Théal de Chardin, um, because obviously these kinds of ideas were uh, anathema to the church at the time, and he was not permitted to publish on uh, topics of philosophy and theology during his lifetime. So his works mostly were published after he died in 1955. And then they had this huge and fascinating reception um, at that point in the 60s, uh, 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, so people don't realize, I think, that that actually he has this pre-war reception, that his papers, his, his um, manuscripts, some of his books were circulating uh, secretly uh, in some ways in not just in the Jesuit order, but in French intellectual circles more broadly, probably from about, at least as far as I can tell, from about the 1920s. And, and so they had a huge impact on the development of things like personalism in the 1930s um, and, and many of the discussions that I track in the book. And he's frequently invoked. So, you know, he was well known also in, in French intellectual life more broadly. Um, so he's a much more important figure, I think, than than people have realized for this for this earlier period. The, the implications of what you just described make me think also, I mean, just more generally of the wonderful source work throughout the book. And I always like to ask a question about uh, how you did your your uh, your mining of the archives or where you looked for the sources. I have to say, by the way, I really loved the cartoons drawn at Jersey <laughs> by the Jesuits. I don't know if you want to say a word about that for the audience, but and I actually really particularly wanted to highlight for uh, for our listeners uh, the work that um, Professor Shortal has done with uh, censorship and analysis of censored texts, texts that were censored during World War II, both by ecclesiastical authorities and by political authorities. Uh, if you'd be willing to talk for a minute about how it came to you to reconstruct that and do that kind of forensic exploration of the sources in the book. Yeah. Um, so let me just explain a little bit about, about censorship. Um, so during the war, uh, these Jesuits uh, who were critical of the Vichy regime and of Nazis were subject to a dual regime of censorship. Uh, it won at the political level. Um, obviously, the Vichy censor did not allow people to come out and explicitly criticize uh, what the government was doing, but also at the ecclesiastical level, which is true for any publication by a member of the clergy. It has to go through um, ecclesiastical censorship at both the level of the Jesuit order and uh, the secular clergy, the bishop, in order to be published. So that means that uh, we can't always take the publications of uh, the clergy in particular at completely at face value, that there are things they can't say necessarily in their published writings that they can say in private writings. So this is why I think archival work is so important for the history of Catholicism, the history of uh, clergy and the history of theology, um, you know, because often history of theology focuses just on the published works, but there's a lot that they can't say in those works. And so it's, I think, particularly important to look at these non-published sources, like letters, um, the cartoons, <laughs> which you mentioned, which uh, some of these figures drew when they were uh, doing their formation, kind of to make fun of their teachers who they found to be well, to adhere to a kind of theology that was very 
foreign to them and they, they saw as deeply outdated. Um, and also talks, right? So in talks, they can often be a little bit more open. Um, so what I try to do in the, in the chapter on the resistance in particular is to show exactly the kinds of things that would have been excised by the Vichy censor in particular. So there's uh, a sermon that Gaston Fissard gives in Vichy, and I sort of compare what he said in the sermon and then what the published form looked like. And it was clear that the censor tried to transform his critique of totalitarianism, which very explicitly mentioned both Nazism and communism, into just a critique of communism. Um, So those are the kinds of things that the censor was doing. Um, So I think that's important to keep in mind because uh, when we think about the history of, of Catholicism during the war in particular, it's important to sort of recognize the role that censorship is playing. But my argument is that in that context, theology plays an especially important role because it can get around some of these issues of censorship because it allows them to kind of encode a political critique um, that would get around the censor, that wouldn't initially arouse uh, the censor's uh, concerns. This is, uh, I think, actually a great point of entry also into a conversation about who was doing the censoring from the church side of things. When we talk about theology, obviously, it's a very capacious term, like most uh, you know, disciplines. Uh, but in the case of your book, so much of the theology is coming from rebels. They mm-hmm. become less rebellious. Their own status changes in the course of your story. But obviously, there are competing theologies at play uh, for much of the book. And in that sense, I wanted to ask maybe too simplistic a question, but I think a really important one, especially for a lot of our listeners, which is to what extent can we talk about and I mean, let's maybe treat this as a historical question. To what extent at different points in the 20th century Europe or France could we talk about uh, theology outside the Roman orbit or outside the orbit of the Holy See? There are a lot of uh, scholars and a lot of, I mean, I, from what I saw, even you know, particular French figures in your book, uh, Reginald Garigou-Lagrange, who, among others, was PhD advisor to the future John Paul II, uh, I've written about a lot on that score, uh, is is a is an important foil among others. So I don't know if we want to call him Roman or not, but I'm curious where how do you how do you track those boundaries? Because of course there is the counter theology to the theology that you're raising, and even if we forget the laity for a second the clergy go in a lot of different directions. So I'm just curious, where do you see your protagonist as really claiming theology and succeeding for themselves? Yeah, so they are very deliberately engaged in this kind of internal theological debate within the church, and especially against some of these, I think it's fair to call them Roman figures, even though they are French uh, by nationality. and, And those were the people that were most critical and whose critiques led essentially to the condemnation in 1950. Gary Goulagrange was really uh, instrumental to that. Um, but I think the key difference, I mean, certainly the French versus Roman, you know, that that's, that's crucial to the story, but maybe a bigger difference is between theological approaches and what um, Delubac and his circle are reacting against is in particular the dominance of uh, a particular kind of theology in the church that was known as neo-scholasticism. 
Um, <clears throat> and this model dated back essentially to the revival of Thomism in the 19th century. So the revival of the work of Thomas Aquinas um, and you know, that was made kind of central to the theology of, and philosophy of the church uh, under uh, Pope Leo XIII. And um, they're deeply, deeply critical of this model. They see it as actually a departure from tradition because it relies so much on 16th century commentaries on Thomas Aquinas rather than Aquinas himself. And therefore, as, as in a way... Um, complicit in the secularization of European thought and life. And what they object to in particular is this strong separation between the natural and supernatural orders, which they see as, as paving the way for uh, the evacuation of religion from public life. So I think that's kind of the bigger dispute. And in the book, I sort of draw these, these, this distinction between these two approaches, broadly Thomist and, and one that's, I call it broadly patristic, that's rooted in um, the church fathers and St. Paul. And that would be the approach that to do back circle um, is associated with. And I think that's the kind of more important distinction from my mind. Um, but in terms of, of Rome, I mean, I think it's, I've always thought that, that maybe the role of the Vatican is, is overemphasized in the history of the church. Um, and even in something like theology, which you might think is deeply driven by what the Vatican is saying, it seems to me that the Vatican is usually playing catch up, <laughs> that, that things are happening elsewhere, a little bit outside of its remit. And then eventually, you know, those things get accepted or not um, by the central authorities of the church. But it's the central authorities are not driving the conversation, really. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, a fantastic explanation. And in part, also, I think it helps to sort of pull together the different strands uh, heading into the latter stages of your story. Uh, I asked about Rome in part also because, of course, Vatican II, even though it marks the near end point of your story, is uh, crucial for making sense of Dulubac and and Dulubac's Return, rehabilitation, rise—whichever term at whichever uh, whichever point in his story we decide to, to to seize on. May I ask if you had to sort of pack it into uh, I don't know a few sentences? What would you say the influence ultimately of Nouvelle Théologie at versus after Vatican II was? Because, of course, this is a major debate among scholars of Catholicism, how much of Vatican II actually remained after Vatican II. And uh, my beloved, previously mentioned, Pope John Paul II uh, features quite centrally in these debates, as you know. So um, at versus after, what do you think? Yeah, so I, you know, part of the argument is that, that Vatican II is sort of the natural endpoint of the story because the Nouvelle Théologie, in a, in a sense, gets um, the imprimatur of the council and becomes almost, I don't want to say the official theology of the council, but it, it, it is heavily represented in the documents of the council. And uh, the reason for that is that many of these figures were involved in writing those documents. And what happens, and it's sort of an exciting story, is, you know, this was not at all something that was expected um, coming into the council. It was expected that it would uphold this traditional kind of neo-scholastic theology and all of the draft documents were written with that language. Um, But there was a kind of revolt that happened at the first session when several of the church of the council fathers, um, people like Cardinal Frings of Cologne, 
sent back those documents and, and, and voted them down and said, we don't want this kind of older theological model, this frigid neo-scholastic model, as they called it. Um, and people like Frings brought with them a theological expert to uh, help them in, in their determinations. And his was uh, Joseph Ratzinger, who became Benedict XVI. And many, if not all of the um, people associated with the Nouvelle Théologie were involved in this kind of capacity at uh, Vatican II. So they played a crucial role in writing the documents. Uh, Yves Congar in particular was really central. He's, he wrote about, or was involved in writing about eight of the 16 uh, major documents. Um, so that's the most obvious level is that is they're, they're actually helping to write them. But you see their imprint in um, especially the ecclesiology of the council. Um, in Lumen Gentium, which is the, the document on the church, you see both Yves Congal's uh, People of God vision of the church, but also de Lubac's Eucharistic theology, ecclesiology represented the idea of the body of Christ. Um, in the documents on ecumenism, Congal is really, really central there. Um, and also just the general kind of tone and spirit of the documents, the embrace of uh, the role of history in the life of the church, this what Chenu calls an inductive method of starting from the contemporary context and then reading the gospel um, and the tradition in light of that context, rather than starting with eternal principles and working down um, this kind of pastoral style of the, in which the documents are written, which is so different from the early, very juridical language of the neo-scholastic encyclicals that precede it, um, but also the role of ressourcement, of returning to the sources of the Catholic tradition, is reaffirmed over and over again. Um, both the, the Church Fathers, the Bible, um, Thomas Aquinas, and especially this idea, because the Council's goal was to update the Church, right, to bring it in, into line with uh, the changes of the modern world, um, Central to that to that uh, goal was rooting, um, updating, or adjournamento in ressourcement. So modernizing the church by returning to the sources of the tradition, and that's I think a key uh, approach that that is derived from the Nouvelle Théologie that you see in the documents of the Council. So I will just append to that uh, a little follow up based on what lives on in the sense, obviously. You mentioned Ratzinger. Ratzinger would become Benedict XVI. Karol Wojtyła from Poland worked alongside Kongar uh, on a number of the uh, of the elements of the council that you referenced. But that doesn't automatically mean that the successive pontificates are going to follow the same line down to Francis today. And in that sense, I'm curious with the embrace of the laity and particularly this idea of eschatology, uh, conceptualizing life in terms of the end times, at least in part, you talk about a counterpolitics that was actually, I think, formulated uh, in, in the context of what you were saying at the beginning, the pushing back against church-state separation, the traditions of neo-scholasticism. Let's say church-state separation is still obviously an issue today (laughs) in so many ways. Uh, Neo-scholasticism, I think less so, although depends where you look within the church. are some of these battles still being fought? Or for you, did the conversation really end in the 1960s and 70s? 
No, I, I certainly don't think so. Um, you know, at the in the most immediate context after the council, there was, of course, as, as you sort of alluded to earlier, this this split uh, over how to interpret the council and what the legacy of the council should be. And it produced, you know, what have come to be known as a progressive and a, and a conservative sort of uh, reaction. And that, you know, I showed that, that that was already kind of happening at the council itself, especially in debates around Gaudi Metzbes. And it divided uh, the members of the Nouvelle Théologie along similar lines to, to the divisions that I trace earlier in the book, starting in, in the post-war period between the Dominicans associated with Nouvelle Théologie, like Chenu and Colgar, and the Jesuits uh, like Duribac, Danielou, um, etc. And so in some ways, I think those earlier debates kind of set up the divisions of, of the post-conciliar period, which have to do with the role of the church in, in the modern world, essentially. And people like Duribac feel as though um, the council makes too many concessions to the modern world, that it opens its that it opens the church up to the modern world so as to be invaded by it, that it doesn't have the courage of its convictions. Um, and so that is is super influential on on people like Ratzinger as well, and I think Boitiwa, who was who was in a similar camp. Um, so it definitely informed those debates after the council. And this vision we have nowadays that I think still persists of, of a kind of progressive versus conservative line within the church. But part of what I try to show is that um, someone like Duduback was actually a favorite, not just of, you know, so-called conservatives like Benedict, but also of Francis, um, also of uh, Gustavo Gutierrez, uh, famous liberation theologian. Um, so I think it's easy sometimes to take those divisions and read them back onto the earlier 20th century or to think that they've always been there. But uh, I actually think those are rather recent and uh, they're not necessarily helpful for thinking about some of these figures um, who do kind of cross uh, these boundaries between progressive and conservative or right and left. This is where intellectual history really comes in because I mean you've you've given a, a, a number of examples already of uh, methodology and content sort of existing side by side, but not in the same way and not all the time. And that that seems to me to help explain how, of course, Gutierrez and Ratzinger end up as far away as can be in the from the nineteen eighties onward, if not earlier. But the affinity for the methods pioneered by your protagonists is, I think, very much shared. And certainly, likewise, as you said, for for Wojtyla. Uh, but that, that actually brings me to a question, just to circle back to something you said at the very beginning of our conversation about theology and intellectual history, because there aren't a lot of books like yours. And I think it's important also to conceptualize, especially in this day and age where graduate programs are shrinking and we have to be creative, I think, about the kinds of methodologies we incorporate into our graduate seminars and independent readings. How do you make uh, your pedagogical case for using theology as a as a portal for either teaching intellectual history or or more generally modern European history. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about it so much from a pedagogical perspective, although I do try in my classes on my surveys on intellectual history to also incorporate um, theology and religion and and bring in people that, you know, are as a little bit outside of the canon as we would normally see it. But I just think it's both sides are enriched by, by bringing these two things together, um, because I think theology tends to be 
a little bit internalist in its reading of some of these developments, um, focusing on on kind of internal debates within the tradition, you know, going back to the Middle Ages or before. And um, intellectual history focuses only on these on these secular thinkers. And part of what I try to show in the book is actually, you know, these real, these secular philosophers like uh, Alexandre Kojève, um, Sartre, uh, Georges Bataille, uh, Heidegger, Merleau-Ponty. They were deeply engaged, actually, in in theological debates. They read theologians and engaged with them. And theologians made really important contributions to the debates of the period around existentialism, um, phenomenology, the philosophy of history, human rights theory, etc. So I think both sides are sort of missing a piece of the puzzle if we um, if we don't bring those two things together. Um, but also, I think there's a kind of broader methodological point uh, about contextualization that is raised, I think, by religious thought, um, which is that intellectual historians, you know, often focus on the sort of immediate moment uh, that produces a work, um, but you know, one of the experience of writing about theology has has really driven home is that you really have to keep in mind both that um, sort of temporally intensive moment, let's say, and this more temporally extensive uh, tradition in which they're embedded. So, you know, for someone like Dudubach, you need to know something about Augustine, about Thomas Aquinas, and you need to know about, you know, what's happening in Europe in the 1940s. And so I think it does raise kind of new and interesting methodological questions about what contextualization is. Uh, that is, I think, a phenomenal point, and 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 I, mean, I thought that was actually methodologically a tremendous contribution uh, that you're making. I I, I did want to ask you a question. Uh, I mean, obviously. Uh, you and I have been running in some of the same professional social circles for years. You know Brenna Moore, who, whom I interviewed not long ago for this podcast and who recently published Kindred Spirits. And it strikes me that this uh, question of multiple contexts and multiple contextualisms is relevant also in her work, which focuses on lay figures as opposed to clergy. I wanted to ask you uh, just how you would, I mean, maybe this is this is a, an out of left field question, but I would love to have your answer to it. Her model of going back to the pre-modern, whether ancient or medieval thinkers, some of whom you just named, right? Augustine, Paul, uh, especially the medieval monastic thinkers, uh, Aquinas and Bonaventure, as a way of constructing a, she calls it, non-procreative model, right, of social relations that's an alternative to family. You're writing about priests. We're talking about male celibate figures. Okay, there are others, Germaine Ribière, there's gender in your story, there are women in your story, but it's mostly a masculine story and mostly a clerical story. So, I'm just curious if you feel like that non-procreative logic, if I can put it that way, following Brenna Moore, is relevant to this kind of understanding and to the way you want to frame your story as well. Yeah, I think it is, but it but it's sort of interesting because there's maybe a little bit of a contradiction between their own lifestyle and the kind of thought that their their social theory, let's say. Um, because, you know, in the book, uh, I emphasize a lot the role of, of friendship in intellectual life. And obviously, that's something that, that Brenna does really beautifully in that book and is really central to her to her work. 
um, because it really struck me when I was reading their sources how important their relationships with each other as fellow Jesuits, as fellow seminarians, and then later as, as priests, how, how central those relationships were to their intellectual development, and especially the role that affect played, um, not just the fact that, you know, they read each other's work, etc. Um, they felt like they had a support network when they felt embattled uh, within the church, when they felt as though their teachers didn't understand what they were doing, or, you know, they were surrounded by um, a broader uh, ecclesiastical system with which they disagreed in some ways, or they were being um, sort of harassed essentially um, by their superiors later on. Those relationships were so, so central uh, to their intellectual life in particular. And I think we can't really separate the effective, um, affective uh, from the intellectual dimension of those relationships. And, and I think celibacy is really important to that. Um, you know, it's, it's not a coincidence that they're, they're not married. These are, these are the central relationships in their lives. Um, so in that sense, in their own world, yes, a non-procreative sexuality is obviously central to their identity. Um, and I don't think it's extraneous to their intellectual life, as I've been saying, but then in their, in their social theory, um, the idea of gender complementarity, um, based on sexual difference is absolutely central as the kind of building block of social and political life. And so there's a kind of disconnect uh, there, I think, uh, between their own life experience and how they imagined uh, society ought to be structured. Well, I mean, we could take a specific example. Humane Vitae is entirely consistent here, uh, which, I mean, it's a way of also, I guess, thinking, uh, getting at the question we were discussing before about the afterlife of Vatican II and the Nouvelle Théologie. because so many Catholics rebelled against Humane Vitae, but at the end of the day, I, I think you would agree, it was more or less in line with what de Lubac would have wanted. Uh, Possibly. I mean, I, I assume he would have supported it. I don't know exactly what his take was on it. One of the things that really struck me, actually, doing this work was how little he and some of these other figures mentioned issues like sort of nuts and bolts issues of marriage and sexuality beyond these kind of big abstract questions of um, personalism and the man woman dialectic for FISA or, you know, the idea of gender complementarity as as the model for personalism of a, of a union that differentiates, um, that preserves the difference between the persons it, it unites. Um, beyond that, they're not really talking very much about, about marriage and sexuality at all. Um, and I'm not saying that was necessarily common there, you know, other, other clergy were of course talking about those things, but it was really not a central issue for them. So I find that really striking given how central it is nowadays within the church. Um, and it's sort of a reminder of, of, you know, or it sort of denaturalizes our own moment, I think in interesting ways to remember that, that these weren't always, you know, central, uh, vital existential questions for, uh, Catholic theologians, that they were much more focused on things like totalitarianism, secularization, etc. So I think it's kind of useful to think about in the context of present debates. Yeah, I think that's also a wonderful link to pedagogy in the sense of lessons that I would hope that our graduate students learn from us in terms of how to cast or even how to structure syllabi, right? We all have to make arguments about relevance. <laughs> why Why should you read about my book? Why should you care? Uh, and, and you make that point beautifully. You just did, I think, uh, just now. I uh, wanted to ask 
one more question about the book itself and then maybe uh, transition to what you're working on now. And the, the question I wanted to ask had to do with uh, Jews and Judaism because there's been actually a fair amount of scholarship in recent years. John Connolly's book is is maybe the most has gotten the most attention, but the transformation of Roman Catholic teachings on Jews and Judaism. And of course, it's a bittersweet book, Connolly's book, in so many ways, because uh, the the path is a winding one and not everyone really makes the jump. And there's a, a debate about whether or not the Catholic Church really fundamentally has <laughs> changed its understanding, uh, uh, well, its supersessionist understanding with respect to Judaism. Uh, if you could just say a few words of how you think Nouvelle Theology matters for understanding that question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's sort of part of this this broader argument I have, and one of the things that drew me to these figures um, is the way that they are, in some ways, you know, very praiseworthy, and we would really agree with <laughs> their political stance during the war. Um, but in other ways, you know, they were deeply, deeply illiberal. So their, you know, their critique of Nazism did not emerge from a from a kind of liberal pluralist uh, framework. And I think that the question of Judaism is a really good example of this. Um, I stress, you know, they were they were really, really important uh, critics of anti-Semitism. They were that was central to their critique of Nazism um, because they really stressed uh, the relationship between Christianity and Judaism and that, and to, to sort of siphon off Judaism from the history of Christianity and the identity of Christians um, was to do violence to Christianity. So, you know, Dubach says that anti-Semitism is a form of anti-Christianity and he's thinking of, you know, the German Christian movement, which is attempting to, to separate that, that history off. Um, so that was really central to their, to their resistance to Nazism um, but at the same time, you know, I, I show how they kind of reinforce some of these old tropes of um, anti-Judaism, of this old tradition of um, of contempt for uh, the Jewish faith uh, within Catholicism. And in particular, um, you know, I stress how their critique of Nazism uh, remained based on a commitment to the conversion of the Jews at the end of time. Um, and so it was based on a supersessionist model whereby Christianity kind of completes and supersedes Judaism. It, I call it a kind of soft supersessionism because it's not a supersessionism that says, you know, Judaism is therefore irrelevant um, and, you know, it's, we don't need to have anything to do with it. But they do see Christianity as obviously completing, as being the culmination. Um, so in many ways, they remain kind of bound to this, to this older tradition um, which is just an just a further evidence of of things that that Connolly talks about about you know even the most progressive theologians in this period remain bound to some of these to the, some of these tropes and this I don't think takes away from what they did do to be fair it's this is not a value judgment um, and I think it did have an important impact on on you know things like Vatican II um, but I think it's really important to recognize because it also gets at some of the limitations of their of their work. Well, I, and, and I think also it underscores that when you use the word progressive, that's not necessarily an aesthetic or moralistic description, right? right. Progressive does not equal good, <laughs> in quotation marks, which which may be counterintuitive for some readers or some, some listeners, just in terms of how they try to think about change 
in the religious context. Uh, but I mean, yeah. I, I just wanted to say that I hope everyone listening in buys the book. It is a very elegantly and beautifully written book. And uh, it, it, it's very important, I think, especially as a work of intellectual history, but more generally for thinking about Roman Catholicism in a modern context. Tell us, please, now, what what are you working on? Yeah, so so I am trying to to build a little bit on uh, some of the themes that I explore and some of the figures I explore in this book, and especially uh, the figure of Teilhard de Chardin, um, because he's such a fascinating figure. So I've I've sort of begun working a little bit on the reception of his thought later on. So not this earlier moment that I look at in the book, but the post 1955 after his death. Um, and his, you know, it turns out that after his death, he developed this kind of cult following amongst a really wide and and kind of odd <laughs> array of people, um, including anti-colonial activists, people like Leopold Senghor, who I, I mentioned in in the book, uh, UN functionaries as well, new age uh, types, uh, environmentalists, uh, liberation theologians, and and third world theologians, as they called themselves at the time. And so uh, I've been looking a little bit about at his reception for what it can tell us about, in particular, Catholic visions of global order and global integration. And so I'm thinking the next book is going to be about um, how do Catholics imagine the global as a theological, political, ecological problem? And how does that kind of global consciousness interact with secular forms of global consciousness rooted in the economy or international law or science? Um, so I'm, I'm interested again in, in this question of decentering the role of the Vatican in, in a global history of the church, but also thinking about how the history of religion uh, might uh, contribute to global history or, or have something to, to say to global historians more broadly. Oh, I love the project. Uh, ecology, my hunches, will will lead you back to eschatology to some degree. Uh, how could it not, given some of the figures you're inhabiting? But uh, I, I'm just curious. Let me let me ask. It, 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 what do you think Teilhard de Chardin would bring to conversations, or what does he bring to conversations about climate crisis and, uh, well, for lack of a better way of putting it, eco catastrophe? Yeah, no, he, he had a huge impact on um, Catholic ecological thinking. Um, I think in part because his his account of uh, of the world and of evolution gives new kind of spiritual value to the material world and to non-living things as well, to, to, to non-living matter um, as part of this universe that is progressively taking on the features of Christ so that we can see the face of Christ in this rock or in this tree, right? So I think that's that's why he's really important for Catholic environmentalism. And he is, in fact, uh, cited in Francis's encyclical uh, on the environment as a result. Um, but then there are also criticisms of him by eco-feminists for the way he maybe still reinscribes um, certain forms of anthropomorphism or anthropocentrism, um, and and patriarchy. So there is also an interesting debate there about about how far he goes in that direction. I mean, this brings us back to context on some level, but but I mean, I, I think that it takes you in powerful normative directions too, uh, not just the actual intellectual history that we've been discussing. Um, 
Sarah Shortal uh, has been my guest today. She is Assistant Professor of History at the University of Notre Dame, and she has just published with Harvard University Press a book that you should all go out and buy, Soldiers of God in a Secular World, Catholic Theology and 20th Century French Politics. Sarah, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me.